you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning, Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that the name of Jesus is a powerful name. It's a name worthy of our praise and our worship and our honor. And so we come into this room this morning with the purpose of knowing you through Jesus and worshiping and serving you because of what he's done. Thank you that his death and resurrection paves the way for us to know you well. I pray for our minds this morning as we study your word. Help us to understand what it has to say. I pray for our hearts that we would believe, that you would remove our doubts, that you would remove our resistance, allow us to trust you and submit to you. Pray that your spirit would move in us and empower our hands and our feet and our bodies for your service. Father, we love you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I posted a comment on Facebook that ended up being one of the more controversial things that I had posted. Uh, I just wrote a little sentence on there, and all it said was, just say no to cookies with raisins inside. Now, uh, let me explain where I'm coming from on this. I think cookies with raisins are wrong, are fundamentally uh, wrong. And here's why. Now, now, see, people are already hissing me, starting to get angry. And I understand this. this. This little post generated just dozens of comments. People accused me of disrespect. People began to quote scripture at me about uh, false gods and heathenism and all of this sort of stuff. And uh, my contention is this, that cookies with raisins are fundamentally deceptive uh, at their core, right? Because I pick up a cookie and I take a bite of it thinking that I'm going to be filled with chocolatey warmth, and instead I get a mouthful of raisin. And it's evil, and it's wrong, right? And uh, I was at a wedding yesterday, beautiful wedding, and they had an array of cookies in jars, and it was just, it was lovely, and they were labeled uh, with wonderful calligraphy script, chocolate macadamia nut, double chocolate chip, uh, sugar cookies, and then down at the end here you have uh, oatmeal raisin, and my two-year-old son walked up, and I said, do you want a cookie? And he said, sure, and he said, I want that one, and he pointed at the oatmeal raisin, and my immediate thought was, 
Not in my family, boy, right? <laughs> We're not going to do that. But I will say, I let him eat it. And then uh, he ate it. And then he did not get any more of those cookies. He was done with them. He didn't like it. He went to the double chocolate chip. And I thought, that's my son, right? That's my boy. <laughs> He's learning the family ways. Now, here's the deal. Even as I share that, and as I explain my aversion to those cookies, and I tell you that it's wrong to eat them, many of you disagree. And in fact, some of you are genuinely angry with me right now, right? You're struggling with it. Uh, you're going to tweet about it later. My pastor is intolerant, judgmental. Uh, the more thoughtful among you will write a blog post, right? Open letter to my pastor. You moron, why? You know, and you're going to do that because you're frustrated. Because uh, it rubs up against one of our key cultural values. And that is that I ought to be able to do and believe and eat and say and think whatever I want to And you don't impose your values about anything on me, whether it's a cookie or whether it's something more significant. If you begin to insist in our culture that there is only one right way to know God, you will quickly face resistance, won't you? Because the vast majority of those in our cultural context would say, no, I am my own authority. If there's one thing that our culture values. It is that the individual is in authority over himself, right? So you don't tell me that one way is right and one way is wrong. That makes me angry. Well, it's been that way ever since the beginning of Christianity. Those who have proclaimed that Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life have always faced resistance, persecution, threats, opposition. It's always been that way. Now, the reasons have varied from time to time to time throughout the history of the church. And as we look at our passage this morning, Acts 4, what we're going to see is a couple of the apostles, Peter and John, stand up boldly and they make a statement that in Jesus Christ, you have salvation. Not only that, but Jesus is the only way to have salvation. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And they face opposition toward that. It's interesting, in the very early stages of Christianity, the Romans were generally okay if you said, I worship Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. They actually were okay with that. What they were not okay with was if you said, Jesus is the only Son of God. And therefore, I can't worship the emperor and the Roman pantheon and Jesus all at the same time. And often that's even true in our culture. It's okay to talk about Jesus as long as you place him alongside Buddha and Mohammed and every other religious leader throughout history. But as soon as we say, Jesus is the way, that rubs up against our desire to be in charge, doesn't it? It rubs up against our culture's desire to say, I have autonomy over my life. And that's what we see here. Peter and John's statement that Jesus is the only way rubs up against the authority of the religious leaders of their day who say what we really want to maintain is the status quo. Okay, and so the question as we move forward into this passage for you is, how comfortable are you, how comfortable am I with the idea that the scripture says that Jesus is the only way to eternal life? And if we believe that, if we believe that Jesus has died and truly risen again, how comfortable are we with saying that in Jesus Christ and what he has done, we have eternal life and only in Jesus Christ. And my guess is if I were to poll this room, some of you would say, I'm not sure I even believe that. Others would say, yeah, I believe that, 
but I certainly don't want to put my neck out for it. And others would say, ah, I absolutely believe that, and I'm willing to proclaim it. And what we see in the early church is this willingness, because of their love for Jesus Christ and their love for others around them, to respectfully but boldly proclaim that Jesus is the way to eternal life. All right, let's look at Acts 4 again. As they were speaking, that is, as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. All right, the first thing we see right away in Acts chapter 4 is that the gospel divides people. The gospel divides. Now, if you remember the context, if you were here last week, you remember in Acts 3, Peter and John are walking up to the temple. They see a lame man. They heal him in the name of Jesus Christ. And then Peter stands up and begins to preach that it is in the name of Jesus that this man has been healed. And it is only in Jesus that we have eternal life. Now, as they are preaching, the Sadducees and the leaders of the temple come up and they stop them. Now, it helps to know who the Sadducees are. Right. In early Jewish history in the first century, you had a few parties that were very significant. One was the Pharisees, who Jesus deals with a lot. Pharisees were the religious conservatives. They believed all of the Old Testament was true. They believed in the future resurrection of the dead, of the righteous. They believed uh, in all the prophets. The Sadducees only believed in the Torah. They were the religious liberals. They were in league with the Romans. And so the Sadducees uh, were the ruling party. It was out of the Sadducees that the high priest was usually chosen. Uh, They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a coming Messiah. They were there to keep the peace between the Jewish people and the Romans. So they see Peter and John preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead in particular, and that annoys them because it threatens to upset the apple cart, the status quo. And so they come and they arrest Peter and John Put them in jail till the next day until they can deal with them at their formal meeting the next day. All right, so the Sadducees and the captain of the temple are opposed. On the other hand, as they're preaching, 5,000 people come to know Jesus. And right away, the gospel has this dividing impact on their culture. See, most of the people saw that Jesus Christ is promising them eternal life, Freedom from oppression, not only ultimately from the Romans, but from the Jewish leaders who were oppressing them, and a relationship with God. But there's a group for whom it threatens their authority. Last Sunday in the evening, as my wife and I were just kind of hanging around at home, we flipped on the television, and there was this new show on called Breaking Amish. And some of you may have seen some information about this or heard about it. It was an interesting scenario. What they have done is they've found a few young people from, an Amish commu- from different Amish communities who desire to get out of the rules and the laws of the Amish community, right? And so they're going to move to New York. And of course, they've made it very dramatic and they've probably given these people a script. But nonetheless, uh, the principle is interesting because you've got these people, these young people, they say, I've lived my whole life under these rules and regulations. I have to wear certain clothes. I have to farm at certain times. I cannot listen to certain music. I can't watch certain things. And they are dying for freedom. And on the other hand, you have traditionalists, their parents, their grandparents, the religious leaders who are saying, nah, if you leave, we'll shun you. If you leave, we'll oppose you because they've protected a way of life for hundreds of years. 
That's the situation you're seeing here in the first century. As Jesus comes on the scene, the apostles are preaching a message of freedom and life in Jesus Christ that rubs up against the authority of the Sadducees and the ruling leaders. And yet people are responding by the thousands. In our day and age, the gospel will divide. Whether you're kind about it or not, which we should be, the gospel will divide because it is the message that Jesus Christ died and he rose again. And if he rose again, then he's the only means to receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. It split their culture, it splits ours because it upsets the status quo. In their day and age, the status quo was Sadducees ruling over the temple. In our day and age, status quo is I ought to be able to do whatever I want. All religions are basically equal. Nobody is better than anybody else. And so it upsets the apple cart. And so it divides. And yet as you look at the scripture, the apostles are insistent, and even Jesus is insistent that he's the only way, that the gospel is the only way to eternal life. Look at verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter stands up and makes this point. Look, the reason this man is healed is because of the name of Jesus Christ. Now, in their culture, a person's name represented the person. So parents would often give their kids names that fit their characteristics. If you go back into the Old Testament, sometimes they didn't name their kids until they were about uh, two years old or older. So if you look at the book of Ruth, you see these two guys, their names are Malon and Kilion, names which mean weak and sick. And you go, who would name their child weak one or sick one? Well, they were a couple years old and their parents observed that over time they weren't too healthy. So they named him that. The first thing that happens in the book of Ruth is what? Malon and Kilion die. Okay. As you get to the New Testament, you see that. People are named according to their characteristics. You know what Jesus' name means? Well, it goes back to the Old Testament. The name is Joshua in the Old Testament or Yeshua. It means what? God saves. Or God is the one who saves. And Peter stands up and he makes this point. It's in the name of Jesus the one in whom God saves, that this man is healed. And only in him can you have salvation. Only in Jesus does God save you from your sin and save you for eternal life. And in this context, he's looking at these Sadducees and he's saying, you know what? The Romans won't save you. The Romans won't preserve this nation. Jesus will. And that creates conflict. Some of us are uncomfortable with the concept that there would be one way to eternal life. Uh, I saw a research study done by the Pew Research Group a few years ago, found that only 24% of religious adherents in this country, that is those who regularly practice a religion, only 24% 
would say that their religion is the only way to know God. And I read that and I thought, well, of course, you know, you've got uh, Buddhists who will basically accept that any way could be the right path up the mountain. You've got all kinds of belief systems where they say that. Now, what was interesting, though, was they also pulled and separated out evangelical Christians, those who go to evangelical churches, and they found that the number was a little higher, but still only 36% of those who attend evangelical Christian churches believe that their belief system is the only way to know God. That means only 36% of evangelicals would say the gospel is the only way to eternal life. The majority don't believe that because it is so much in conflict with the ruling values of our culture. And it's unpopular to take that stand. And it's easy to say, well, that's, you know, Jesus was loving, Jesus was kind, Jesus was accepting, and so we shouldn't say he's the only way. But as you look at the scripture, Jesus says, I'm the only way. Over and over again, look at John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John chapter 10. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus says, everybody who claimed to be a way to God before me, they're a thief and a robber you come in through me. I'm the door. You want to go to God? You go through me. And so is it unkind, is it arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way? Only if we don't really believe it's true. Because if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he defeated death and sin, then to extend the offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ is compassionate, kind, and loving. And it matters It matters deeply. Come back to my cookie illustration again. Uh, In the grand scheme of eternity, it really doesn't make a huge difference what kind of cookies you eat most of the time, right? (laughs) However, there are other decisions that they make a huge difference, right? Uh, I pulled out several months ago out of a parking lot in town and I turned left on this particular road. And after I turned, I looked down the road a little bit and I saw another car headed straight at me. And I thought, uh, that car is going the wrong way. And then I looked around and I realized, no, he's not. I am going the wrong way. I turned the wrong direction on a one-way street. Now, none of us would want to argue, look, you like going east, I like going west. It's all right, man. You go east, I'll go west, even though the road is one way. That's fatally dangerous. We'll crash, someone will die. Another illustration for you. Several years ago, uh, when I was in my 20s, for a while I was having heart palpitations and uh, challenges with my heart. So I went to the doctor. They ran all these tests. They basically came back and said, uh, you're drinking too much caffeine and you're worrying. Calm down, right? And that was, that was the sum of it. And they went away. Now, imagine I had gone to the doctor and the do- one doctor said, yeah, that's all that it is. You're drinking a bunch of caffeine. You got too much stress. You need to calm down. Another doctor says, we're going to do a heart transplant. You've got major issues. Well, those two are pretty much irreconcilable, right? Before you cut open my chest cavity, you better be right. It matters. The diagnosis matters, right? None of us go to the doctor and accept that one doctor would say you have a cold and the other says you have incurable cancer. And one says, take a Sudafed. The other says, take chemo. It matters. And yet when it comes to matters of faith, often we're very reluctant to say one way could be the right way. 
And yet the situation as we see it in the scripture is that because Jesus is the only son of God who died for our sin and rose again, because of that, we can say he is the way to God. He is the way to God through belief in him. And as Peter and John and the apostles grab hold of that truth, because they've seen him alive, it makes them bold. It makes them bold. It calls us, called them to boldness because they recognize the truth of their position. Look at verses 13 and forward. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. All right, so the leaders face a dilemma. They say, look, uh, there's really nothing we can do to stop them because the people see, here's this guy, he's been raised from lameness. And he's standing right there and he's been sitting there for 40 years and now he's healed. And Peter and John are saying, it's Jesus that did that. And so the Sadducees just pull them in and they say, stop it. Stop it. Don't do that. We'll put you in jail. Bad things will happen to you. Stop it. Right? And then they send them out. Because threatening is all they can do at this point. And the reason Peter and John can be bold, even though they're uneducated, meaning they weren't trained in the law, they weren't rabbis, they weren't trained in philosophy, they're uneducated common men. Peter's a fisherman, but they're bold because they know that they're right. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Maybe you've gotten in an argument with a roommate or a friend And you're bold because you know that you're correct, right? And you don't back down because you know that you're correct. A couple of weeks ago, my two-year-old son was standing in our kitchen at our house and uh, he wanted to get his older sister, Abigail, into the room so he could show her something. And he stood there next to the fridge and Abigail was on the other side of the house and he goes, Abby, Abby, come here. And he didn't say it super loud. And as he said it, he stood there for a minute. And my wife looked at him and said, hey, Samuel, bud, you may need to go find her. She may not have heard you. And he looks at her with this absolute calm. And he goes, Abby will come. And then he just stands there. And then like about 20 seconds later, here she comes around the corner. And then he showed her what he wanted. And we started laughing. We were like, he just had this calm confidence at his age. She will come. I know, right? That is the boldness that we have when we know we're right. And maybe you've experienced that before. You go, I know that what I'm saying is correct. That's where Peter and John are because they know Jesus has risen from the dead. Nothing will contradict that in their minds. Nothing, no philosophical argument is going to overturn the fact that they sat with the risen Jesus. And for the Sadducees and the leaders, they've got a real problem on their hands because no matter what they say, there's this guy standing there who used to be lame yesterday, and now he's walking. And so Peter and John are bold, but notice they're respectful as well. 
They're not jerks. They just say, look, we have to obey God rather than men. If that's a problem, you be the judge of it. You have authority to determine what to do with us. But we have to keep preaching the name of Jesus because it's the only way of eternal life. And we know it. And so they're confident. They're not arrogant. I love this because at the end of the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 21, you see Jesus talking to his apostles. And he says, you're going to be called before kings. You're going to be called before rulers on my behalf. In that time, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And then in Acts, he makes a point of saying, as Peter answers, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he has this confidence that he wouldn't have had just a couple months earlier. Because he knows Jesus is alive. I've had so many conversations with men and women who are not yet at a place where they trust in Jesus. And often when I say it is in Jesus Christ that you have eternal life, if you don't trust in Jesus Christ, you face separation from God because of your sin. But if you do, he's reaching his hands out and extending eternal life. Often the response that you get is, that's so judgmental. That's so intolerant. How can you say that this is the only way? The reason I say it is because I believe Jesus has risen from the dead. And if he has, it's not intolerant. It's not judgmental. It's the most loving offer in the world. To say God is extending his hand to save you from eternal death and provide you eternal life. Peter and John experience that certainty and boldness because they've seen the risen Lord. But interestingly then, the gospel also calls us to unity. Although it divides, it also unites. And so you see in the last half of this passage, and I'm only going to read a portion of this, drop down to verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. As they're bold in preaching the resurrection of Jesus, what happens is they become united around this message. And they say, if Jesus has risen from the dead, then God's kingdom is at work among us. And in God's kingdom, there shouldn't be anybody poor. And so they give of their possessions. They say, in God's kingdom, if we represent it, people will love as Jesus loved us. They won't cling to their rights. They won't cling to their things. They'll give them away. And so there's this unity, but around this message that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's not a unity that says, you know what, you can do or believe or say anything you want and we won't contradict it. That's not unity. Unity, Christian unity instead says there's really one or two things that we unite around. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus died for sin and rose again and we will focus our eyes on that, remain laser focused on that and then As a community of believers, we seek to love and be united around that. Never forget being in Dallas, and my wife and I went to a relatively small church up there. And there was a 
year in which we incurred a number of medical expenses related to the heart things that I was talking about a few minutes ago. And I was in seminary. We didn't have a whole lot of funds. And I remember asking just some friends one morning for prayer that the Lord would provide to pay these medical bills. A week later, somebody from our church comes up and hands us an envelope, said some people were praying for you, thinking about you, wanted you to have this in your situation. Open it up and there was money within $15 to pay the expenses, these thousands of dollars of medical expenses. I remember looking at that and thinking, what a living, vivid example of what it looks like when people say, because Jesus was gracious to me, I'll be gracious to others. Because Jesus gave his life, I'll daily give my life to others. Because Jesus is here and we represent his kingdom, We want to represent it such that we say in God's kingdom, no one will be alone, no one will be poor, no one will be broken, crippled, lame. There will be no sin, sickness, death. And so the gospel unites us around that purpose. And so for me, probably like you, I have days where I'm afraid to speak with boldness. I have days where I think if I do this, I'm going to experience ridicule, I'm going to experience opposition. Fortunately for most of us, we don't experience outright persecution in our country. Nobody takes our homes away. Nobody throws us in jail. Nobody throws rocks at us. But you might experience being ostracized. You might experience being opposed. And yet if we believe that Jesus has died and Jesus has risen again, then we are compelled to be bold. And we are compelled to unite around this mission. Not because somehow we can earn favor with God. Eternal life is a free gift that God gives to those who believe in Jesus Christ. But instead because when we have believed that, the Spirit of God fills our hearts and calls us to represent Jesus Christ. And it's unpopular. And so we do so respectfully, kindly, graciously. But my prayer is we don't step away from this message that Jesus Christ is the unique and only Son of God who offers us the only path to know him and have eternal life. We're going to close here in some worship again this week. And as we do, the question to ask, will you boldly proclaim that Jesus is the only way? Do you believe it? Do you believe that he really rose from the dead? And if so, will you consistently and boldly proclaim to the world around that Jesus is the only way? Father, we praise you this morning because death has been beaten, the grave has been conquered, and Jesus is risen. We praise you because it is not a story, not a fairy tale, but he is alive and through his spirit with us this morning, enabling us to sing, enabling us to know you, and enabling us to be bold in the proclamation of his name. Father, we pray that we would be kind, respectful, and reflect the love and the grace and the character of Jesus Christ in the things that we do, the things we say, and the things that we believe. Father, we pray, though, that we would not be afraid or shy away from the truth that in Jesus Christ there is life. I pray for the men and women in this room that we would go out from here and proclaim that message. And Father, it is often easy for us in this room to believe and proclaim and sing, and it's hard on Monday morning in the midst of a culture that often does not believe as we do. But Father, give us wisdom, 
Give us truthfulness. Give us grace. And through these men and women, I pray move through your spirit that this campus and this world will hear of the name of Jesus Christ and believe in him. We praise you, Father, and thank you. And it is in that wonderful, perfect, precious name that we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week.